You're listening to the ERLC Podcast. If you're a true fan, you would sing, Brent. Well, it's 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 not about Rocky not, Top Tennessee. It's more about knowing my own limitations when it comes to singing. <laughs> There's a reason you can, ho- you can hold a tune. You sing Christmas songs around the office all the time. The, there is a reason that uh, when we are in church, uh, I, I keep my my singing <laughs> very much to myself. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC Podcast, where every week we're talking about our work here at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians need to know about the things going on in the world. I'm Josh Wester, and with me on the podcast today are my co-host, Lindsay Nicolay. Happy fall, y'all, where it's 60-something degrees here in rainy Nashville. And Brent Leatherwood. I'm not that jazzed about the cold weather. Like, old man winter is here. Sweater weather, Brent. No, this is not something to be celebrated, Lindsay. It is when you're six it months is. pregnant I'm, and I'm your body jealous. temperature runs hot. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> jealous. I'm jealous of our listeners down in Florida. So hello well, to them, Brent. <laughs> yes, it's lost on me how you can be Mr. Christmas but not Mr. Winter. Like, do you really think we should True. just move the Christmas holiday to the middle of the summer? Well, no, because that's Independence Day. All right, and well, my and my birthday. <laughs> stay tuned, audience, as we try to unravel the. Uh, the enigma that is Brent Leatherwood. But later in the show, we will also be joined by a special guest, uh, Dr. Paul Miller. Paul is a good friend of the ERLC. He's actually a research fellow with our research institute, and he's uh, an expert in many things, including international affairs, and pays a lot of attention to both the American church and the state of American politics. And so we're very excited about that conversation. But Lindsay, take us into it. Tell us what the ERLC has been talking about this week. Okay, so we have had a very busy news week, lots of things going on, and we would say true in form to 2020. So uh, first off, we want to highlight an explainer by our policy staff in D.C., and it lays out what you need to know about something called the Adoptee Citizenship Act. So as my colleagues will speak into, but have helped me understand, this act would make children who well, they're no longer children, actually, who were adopted from other countries, and they're now over the age of 18. Something happened in the midst of them getting citizenship, whether paperwork wasn't filled out or whatever, and all this time they haven't been citizens and didn't know it. So this would enable them uh, to become citizens. And it also removes a barrier, a significant barrier to international adoption. And we want to remove uh, any of the barriers that we can in order to seek the welfare of vulnerable children. So ERLC is advocating for this bill uh, to be passed. We are very thrilled about it, and we're excited that our policy team has been doing such hard work in this area of human dignity and pro-life. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, you know, look at, you know, if I was to put myself uh, in the shoes of, of a person like this, I mean, uh, you know, I'm just thinking, like, imagine if my parents had adopted me from Spain, uh, and and here I am, you know, in my 30s, and all of a sudden find out that I'm I'm actually not an official citizen uh, because of either a hiccup in the paperwork, or my parents just forgot to do it, or whatever. And all along, I've I've been thinking I'm a U.S. citizen. I'm kind of left on the outside of the system, looking in. And this legislation, which is a, a you know a, a needed correction to the law, we think is is really helpful. And so that's been uh, an emphasis uh, for for us this week at the RLC. And uh, this is a, a policy priority of our our DC team. Uh, been working 
with uh, members of Congress uh, on both sides of the aisle to, to, to try and get this over the finish line before uh, the end of the congressional session. I, I, you know, who knows if that will uh, actually happen, but we are encouraging people to, to let their members of Congress know that, hey, this is something, it's, a, it's an easy fix, uh, and it could be uh, done sooner rather than later. It needs to be done sooner rather than later. Yeah, you'll notice if you follow the work of the ERLC, we don't do a whole lot of these call your congressman kinds of like calls to action. But in this case, what we're talking about are children who were adopted. And when you think about international adoption, these are children who very rarely have any say so or stake in whether or not they, you know, the country that they're going to, where they're going to be adopted. They, they, they're totally, uh, you know, at the mercy of the agency that's working with them, of their own government, of the parents who are here in the United States who are pursuing adoption, trying to give these children a home and a family. And so all we're really asking Congress to do is to give these, you know, these children who were missed because of this glitch in the law or this loophole to close that so that their country, the United States, that they grew up in, where they lived, where their family lives, that these people can can be U.S. citizens without any real, uh, without having to overcome any other obstacles. Because for many of them, that the people that we're talking about, the United States is the only home they've ever known. It's the only country that they've ever called their own. And this is an easy fix. And we're just advocating that it gets done. Yeah. And this is just one of the many examples of how the ERLC is working in the area of human dignity and pro-life. Uh, and so I, I know I, for one, am very thankful for that. So in just a minute, I'll cover another resource that is out of D.C. But first, I wanted to cover a resource that is more practical in nature. So we know that during the pandemic, many have been struggling with mental health issues. And it's not just adults, it's children and teens. And so we have an article by a counselor named Elizabeth Sell, and she she writes about how to walk with teens who struggle with depression and anxiety. She gives us practical steps about how to point them to hope. And she really does um, give us a biblical perspective of community and why relationships are so important in helping teens uh, walk through depression and anxiety, even if it never leaves them um, during their lifetimes here on earth. But she gives these six steps to tangibly uh, help your teen walk through these areas of struggle. So she talks about perspective, redemption, awe, inspire, surrender, endure. And while those words don't seem so tangible, she gives specific questions and specific examples in scripture, um, specific applications. So I found this helpful just reading through, but also not just for teens and friends who have teens who are struggling with this, but also just for adults as well. It's very, very easy to apply. And so ultimately she points us to Jesus, which I'm so thankful um, that he walks with us through our sufferings here on this earth and promises us deliverance one day. But we're also thankful to be able to provide our readers with resources like this. Lindsay, you mentioned the fact that uh, talking about the adoption thing, that's one of the ways that we advocate for human dignity. Well, one of the other ways that we try to help families, especially is, again, we talked about this uh, several times, the fact that we want to help parents walk with their young children, with their teenagers, try how to help them grapple with the difficult things in life. And anxiety is something that we've been talking about a lot, especially since the onset of the pandemic here in the United States. And we know that it's not just affecting adults, that it's affecting children and teenagers. And so this is one of those many resources that we've put together uh, or put out there for people so that they can walk with their children, walk with their teenagers and help them through these difficult issues. 
And as one who has wrestled and continues to wrestle sometimes with anxiety myself, very physical manifestations of anxiety, it uh, I can't recommend this highly enough. And then finally, what we want to highlight is a big news story out of D.C. from one of our SBC churches. Uh, Jeff Pickering, who's our colleague and actually a member at this church, has an explainer on religious liberty and Capitol Hill Baptist Church's lawsuit in Washington, D.C. Basically, churches are not being held to the same standard in D.C. as other social gatherings are. And in this, we're seeing a direct and real violation of religious liberty. Capitol Hill Baptist, as Jeff Pickering uh, lays out in this explainer, he does a very good job of laying it out, has done a a fabulous job um, as they've walked through this situation, respecting the government the best that they can, and yet also seeing the inconsistencies and wanting to address those so that they can continue to meet, to gather as a church body. What I uh, really appreciate about uh, this situation that Capitol Hill Baptist is walking through is, A, uh, they have they have treated the pandemic seriously, which we'll get to later in the uh, in the show. Obviously, we, we've passed a grim milestone this week. but they they've treated the pandemic uh, very seriously uh, to in order to serve their congregation uh, to especially shield the vulnerable. Uh, who might be uh, in their midst um, uh, by gathering physically. And so they've been meeting uh, across the the river, the uh, Potomac River in Virginia, in a socially distanced area outdoors. And so uh, the the city of Washington earlier this summer set up a process where, okay, we, we now feel you can begin holding uh, events and gatherings outdoors. Well, Capitol Hill Baptist says, okay, we, we would love to, to be able to <laughs> congregate once again uh, back in the district. And so they've participated in this, this process uh, that the city of Washington set up. And for, for way too long, they just didn't even get a response. And then when they did get a response, it was essentially no uh, to any religious activity, not just Capitol Hill Baptist. And uh, that that is just, uh, on its face, uh, treating the church unequally. Uh, when you have other outdoor gatherings going on, and you've got a church here saying, hey, we just want to meet outdoors uh, with limitations, uh, with uh, masks, socially distanced, uh, but we really would like to, to congregate within the city that we serve— and you're you're just uh, not getting that equal treatment. Uh, you know they they felt it was time to to take this step of filing uh, a complaint. And um, I think this is a model uh, for other Southern Baptist churches uh, to to look towards to say, hey, they they have been working within the system. They have been in dialogue with local officials. Uh, they have really tried uh, to be in partnership with the city uh, in order to meet. And uh, at every turn here, uh, they, they've, they've just been met with resistance, even while other similarly situated events or entities uh, are able to move forward. Uh, that, that has been at the heart of our council uh, at the RLC throughout this pandemic, which is A, churches on, on your side, try and open lines of dialogue with local officials and uh, view yourselves as partners in in combating the pandemic. And, uh, uh, you know, officials from the state uh, know that churches are treating this seriously and they are doing what they need to do to protect 
their members of their congregation and set forth guidance, not mandates, uh, work within the parameters of the First Amendment, and and that's just not what's happened here. And um, this, I think, is a really helpful way to uh, to walk with our Southern Baptist churches through this experience. That's really well said, Brent. And we have seen a number of cases where churches have had issues with trying to resume their gatherings. And in this case, you know, we, we pointed specifically at Capitol Hill because they've, they've done everything that we think is good in terms of trying to uh, be as accommodating as possible, working with their local officials in good faith. And they've, they've demonstrated that they have successfully been able to meet and to gather, particularly outdoors, uh, without causing a problem uh, or without, you know, endangering anyone's health. And so in this case, you know, we're glad to support Capitol Hill Baptist. And we think this is a model, like you said, for other churches to follow. Yeah, I really appreciate Capitol Hill Baptist's example, their uh, their pastors and leaders' example, their congregants' example. And, and Jeff actually wrote a piece, I think we highlighted it, a couple weeks ago, maybe, he wrote a piece about uh, their gatherings outdoors and just how he has seen the Lord work in the midst of their community uh, during this time. And he encourages us to use these interruptions and these distractions as opportunities to see and join the Lord at work. So um, I was very thankful for that perspective, and I'm thankful for this explainer. And, you know, may the Lord bring a swift resolve to this situation. So while we have a lot of other good, especially newsworthy content on our site this week, for now, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Hey, thanks, Lindsay. And that brings us to the culture section for the week. Brent, it has been a an unbelievably tumultuous time in American life, even since we wrapped the podcast last week. So why don't you tell us what's going on? You mean when we wrapped the podcast last year? Yes. <laughs> Lindsay, you're supposed to laugh. You're not supposed to sit there, you know, cross-eyed. <laughs> I was multitasking, so I really have no idea what you just said. <laughs> it's not always clear whether you're getting the school marm from Lindsay or she's shopping for her fall wardrobe. <laughs> yeah. No, I was not shopping. I was looking at URLC Slack. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, uh, no, I, I we joke about it, but I mean, gosh, this last this last seven days has just been momentous. Yeah, I mean there's wild. just there, there's just no other way to to put it. I, I I put in my my notes here that it's there was so much breaking news. It, it's hard to really pick one story that would be the the lead because honestly what we're going to talk about out of the gate these are just the all the biggest stories and in a in an ordinary time each of them would have been driving the news for days on end, but in this uh, in this uh, weird time vortex that we're in, they're just happening on top of one another. And I, I you know, it, it does make me step back and wonder, like, what is happening to the American psyche uh, in all this? Because I, I feel like we're not even able to process these developments and, and and sit with them and discern them uh, because we are just met with yet another huge uh, development. So maybe that just says something about uh, the time uh, that we're living in. 
Uh, so what I thought was best, instead of trying to pick one that is the biggest to lead with, maybe let's just go in chronological order as they happened uh, from when we wrapped up the podcast. What do y'all say to that? I think that's the best option, Brent. <laughs> All right. So if that's the case, uh, then we will start with late last Friday. So that was when we learned that uh, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had passed away from complications with her battle uh, with pancreatic cancer. And I remember the moment because I was in the ERLC office with Dr. Moore, uh, who was getting ready to go on uh, CNN to talk about coronavirus and uh, the church. And it was about six minutes uh, before he was due to go on. And the news broke and uh, everything shifted in that direction, and rightfully so. I mean, I'm not I'm not lamenting the fact that we we didn't get to to do the segment, uh, but it, it just it just took things in a completely new direction. So, uh, according to uh, CNN, Justice Ginsburg was 87, and she was appointed in 1993 by President Bill Clinton, and in recent years served as the most senior member of the court's liberal wing consistently delivering progressive votes on very divisive social issues, including abortion, same-sex marriage, voting rights, immigration, health care, and affirmative action. Her death, less than seven weeks before Election Day, opens up a political fight over the future of the Supreme Court. And uh, and it, it certainly has. Uh, I mean, there was... There were some moments uh, of folks obviously expressing grief. There, there were uh, uh, just an impromptu vigil uh, held on the steps of the Supreme Court uh, to remember Justice Ginsburg. And uh, honestly, I, I got to tell you, I was touched. Uh, President Trump was holding a rally in uh, maybe it was Wisconsin or, or Minnesota. I, I can't remember exactly where, but he came right off the stage uh, to a press gaggle. And that was apparently where he first heard the news. And and honestly, he I- expressed uh, real empathy for Justice Ginsburg and her family, uh, those affected by the loss. It, it, honestly, it was a touching moment. Uh, it was a very human moment, and I'm, I'm appreciative uh, of that. But uh, just later that evening, uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, uh, he, he confirmed uh, that uh, should President Trump uh, name a nominee for the seat, uh, that, that that individual would get a vote. Uh, so to that end, uh, President Trump did make it official that he would be announcing a pick to fill the seat prior to the election. As a matter of fact, it is due to come this Saturday. Uh, so once we uh, wrap up the podcast and folks listen this coming weekend, we will know uh, who his pick uh, will be. Democrats immediately made charges of hypocrisy by the Republican majority, pointing to the precedent set with the nomination of Merrick Garland by former President Obama in 2016. Now, the details are are slightly different in that the the White House and the Senate are are now controlled by the same party, but Democrats are more focusing on the time frame itself. Garland was nominated 11 months before uh, President Obama left office, and uh, this is happening less than 40 days uh, before the election. Well, regardless, the, the vote is happening, and uh, this just keeps the epic roller coaster ride that is 2020 moving right along. Yeah, it's it's a crazy, crazy time uh, in American life. We talked about that just a little bit. But to start off with, 
because we're the organization that advocates for human dignity, one of the things that that means for sure is that anytime a person who is made in the image of God loses their life, that it's that it's always tragic. It's always sad. And you don't have to look hard at all to find any number of ways that Justice Ginsburg and the URLC were on opposite sides of some of the most important issues, abortion being perhaps the most important one. But even as people who fundamentally disagree about something that important, we can still lament and mourn with those who are mourning and to call her passing a tragedy and lament the fact that she has lost her life. That's that's something that that every Christian should be able to do. At the same time, looking ahead, looking at where we are uh, right now as a country and the fact that now, you know, something that social conservatives, that uh, that evangelicals have wanted, hoped for, prayed for, for a long time is an opportunity to have a Supreme Court made up of justices who potentially could overturn the two abortion laws that are are abortion rulings that have instantiated abortion into American law. And those would be, you know, Roe versus Wade, obviously, and then Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which came in the early 90s. And I don't think there's anything shameful about uh, rejoicing in the the prospect of seeing those rulings overturned in order to have less abortions in the United States. And and we pray and work every single day when we're here at the URLC. Thing that animates all of the work that we do and drives us uh, every single day is the hope that one day abortion will not only be illegal, but unthinkable, that it will be the kind of thing in the United States where the a mother's womb is the safest possible place for every human life. That's that's what we work and pray for. And so as we're looking at this, yes, there's all kinds of politics involved. There's all kinds of things uh, that people have different perspectives on what should happen in terms of precedent, in terms of procedure. But we would just say that if at all possible, if there's an outcome that, that looks like us having a Supreme Court capable of ending abortion, that's something that we should hope and pray for. I agree with all of that, Josh, and just wanted to add as well that, you know, as believers, anytime somebody dies, it reminds us that eternity is at stake, and there's an eternal place that people go to. And so while we here on this earth are working in the public square regarding many issues that are very, very important, while we have differences that are very important and not to be passed over. We know that what we should care about most of all is somebody's eternal state and whether they have trusted in Christ or not. Of course, we don't know that about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I've never, I never had a conversation with her. I'm just saying that that that's where our minds should be going, um, not ultimately with the earthly state of affairs, although those are important, but ultimately with the eternal state of affairs uh, that will last forever. It's just a reminder that's been appointed to us all once once to live and and then once to die and uh, face the judgment seat of Christ. Well, Lindsay, I, I really appreciate what you said and uh, your your point about the things of the earth you know, being important but not ultimate. Uh, certainly, the Supreme Court is that, and that was actually part of what uh, Dr. Moore wrote this week for Christianity Today. He had a piece focused on the Supreme Court and, you know, hoping, as as Josh said, that that maybe this moment leads us to a resolution that is more towards the, the pro-life perspective in, in terms of the legal situation in the country. But even then, he, he pointed out, hey, uh, if Roe versus Wade is overturned, in many ways, we should see that as the beginning of the pro-life movement, uh, because uh, functionally what that means is that the decision of abortion is is going to go to the state level, uh, which means that we're probably going to be having to uh, engage in in 50 different uh, statewide conversations uh, about 
uh, life and the importance of protecting unborn life and uh, moving forward with local legal structures uh, that respect the sanctity of of life. And so um, it was a really good piece. Uh, we will uh, link to that in the, the show notes, but uh, it, it points ultimately what Dr. Moore is driving at is it would be great to get to a time where we actually think about the Supreme Court less <laughs> than we we do right now, uh, where it, it has become uh, another uh, point of friction in our political culture. For the second story in our chronological lineup of gargantuan stories that happened this week, uh, America passed the 200,000 mark for recorded deaths from COVID-19. And honestly, that is a, that's a number that's just really hard to wrap my mind around, in all honesty. Uh, there was a report in Axios that said, the coronavirus has killed a bigger share of the American population than it has in almost any other wealthy country. The death toll here is equivalent to roughly 65 9-11 attacks, and three times more Americans have died from coronavirus than died in the Vietnam War in only a fraction of the time. Uh, as a reminder, they said the crisis has hit people of color especially hard. Black and Latino Americans are dying at about three times the rate of white Americans. They have also suffered far more from the economic fallout, which has uh, fallen largely on lower-wage service industry workers. And the report goes on, the, the deaths keep coming. Uh, America is averaging, averaging roughly 830 per day, even as the country increasingly sees the pandemic as background noise, as live sports resume and schools reopen, and overall interest in news about the pandemic wanes. And I, you know, I mentioned that it's it's really hard to, to wrap my mind around. Well, th this week there was a project done on the National Mall in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, that placed 20,000 flags uh, on a portion of the mall to represent deaths from coronavirus. And it was massive. But even seeing that, it makes you realize that it is just a fraction uh, of the overall deaths from uh, COVID-19. Uh, it, it's uh, just a tremendous number. Uh, and, you know, we we haven't seen anything like this in our, our lifetimes. Uh, and, and so obviously hindsight's 2020, but it's just like, man, were there, is there anything else in the early days or that we could even be doing now uh, to lessen the effect of this uh, disease uh, on our nation? Well, we can take it seriously. So <laughs> this is just my public service announcement to not live in fear and stop your life, but just be smart for the sake of your neighbor. Just be smart. Wear your mask. Don't go to super spreader events. Take it seriously. Most likely it's not going to be over in November. <laughs> um, so 200,000 lives are a lot uh, that have been lost and even more have suffered, whether they're relatives of, friends of, those who have died, or they have suffered from coronavirus and are still um, suffering from some of the after effects. So there will be a day when this is over. <laughs> we just can't let the fatigue cause us to... Um, to not consider our neighbor as we're still in the midst of the pandemic. 
this is significant. I mean, obviously, every death matters, but we're talking about an order of magnitude compared to anything uh, that that we would experience in a normal year. And so, you know, this is this should be stunning, and it should be a a reminder to us to continue to take this seriously. Yeah, and and to you know, for example, to to mark the moment, I, I thought it was interesting. Time Magazine, if you're familiar with their covers, it it always has a red border. This week to mark the, or I think it was this past week to mark the two hundred thousandth death, uh, it had an all black border. The only other time in the history of Time Magazine uh, where they used an all black border was nine eleven. Uh, so that's just a interesting, uh, thing that I, I saw in culture, uh, that, that also, uh, relates to this conversation. So yeah, the reality is, uh, there's a, there's a lot of us, myself included, who are just over, uh, this, this virus. Uh, but unfortunately it doesn't seem like it is over, uh, with us. So, and then on Wednesday of this week, uh, we received news from the grand jury in the Breonna Taylor case out of Louisville. Uh, the announcement of the decision sparked protests and demonstrations around the country. Uh, so uh, to remind our audience, Taylor was killed after officers executed a search warrant at her apartment shortly before 1 a.m. on March 13th, looking for drugs and cash as part of a larger narcotics investigation connected to her former boyfriend. Uh, she was shot six times and and died at the scene. Uh, from the USA Today, the announcement of the grand jury's decision to indict one of the three police officers involved in the shooting death of Breonna Taylor uh, and that the indictment wasn't related to her death uh, sparked another wave of protests for justice and racial equality around the nation. Protesters took to the streets in Chicago Milwaukee, Seattle, and Washington, among other places, following Wednesday's announcement from Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron, which also spurred demonstrations that turned violent in Taylor's home city of Louisville. Uh, And uh, overnight, there were reports of something over uh, 120 arrests made in uh, downtown Louisville uh, alone. Uh, so, uh, once again, we, we, we find ourselves in a very divided, uh, moment, uh, on the issue of, uh, race and, uh, systemic injustice. This is a hard season. I think that's well said, Brent. It, it is a hard season. And for Christians, you know, we, we've basically been setting this up this whole time to say, this is something that should cause us to lament it is something that should cause us to pray. When we when we pray, we are extending our our call to the God of heaven, who is a God of justice. And we know that in this sinful world, we're never going to see perfect justice. But we pray for God's intervention to to make our world more just, to make our legal system more just. Our hearts break for this family that has experienced this tragedy that no longer this member of their family will never be with them again. We'll never sit at their dining room table on Thanksgiving. We'll never gather around a tree at Christmas. We'll never, we'll never be there for some of these most important moments. And our hearts should break for that. We should pray for those who are hurting for the city of Louisville and 
for the future of our country, that we could be the kind of nation that, as diverse as we are, can come together to, as Dr. Moore said in his piece in Christianity Today, to honor human dignity and to recognize the value of our fellow image bearers, regardless of what our political beliefs may be, regardless of the things that might separate or divide us, we can do better than this. And we we should pray and we should lament. Well, it's really hard to find words as well, because uh, while human dignity is not a complicated issue, laws and systems and systemic racism, issues of systemic injustice, those are really complicated issues that um, there often are not easy answers to. And it just grieves my heart in the midst of this time that, um, especially on social media, the lack of charity toward one another, love toward one another, grace toward one another, nuanced conversation uh, with one another, as we've been talking about civility, you know, the lack of kindness toward one another in the midst, of course, understandably very emotionally charged issues, but ones that still require us to treat one another with human dignity as well. So it's it's just tough. And I just, I tend to want to shy away because I don't know the answers. So um, so I'm thankful for people who are working toward this and carrying on conversations. I'm most thankful for the people who are believers who are carrying on conversations in ways that are helpful and constructive rather than ways that are hateful and and diminishing of even their opponent's dignity. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, uh, we just seem to be living in a a season, a, a graceless season. Uh, and I, I liked what you said. There is just a lack of charity uh, out there. And um, I would hope that Christ followers uh, can, can be the ones to demonstrate that grace uh, that is so needed right now, B- because we are the recipients of grace. Uh, we should be the ones who are absolutely uh, leading out on that front. And um, gosh, oftentimes you 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 see on social media <laughs> that is absolutely uh, not not what uh, what you are seeing uh, from from some folks. So. All right, so those were some of the big stories. We, we talked already about the Capitol Hill uh, Baptist uh, situation in D.C., and so uh, that, that was kind of the fourth really big uh, story this week. So we can go on to maybe some items that aren't uh, quite as uh, all-consuming. I thought this was interesting. Uh, Axios reports that California Governor Gavin Newsom is issuing an executive order that seeks to eliminate sales of new gasoline-powered cars in a state by 2035, uh, a move that the White House, uh, immediately responding, says that President Trump, quote, won't stand for. Uh, but this is why it matters. California is the largest auto market in the United States, and transportation is the biggest source of carbon emissions in the state and also nationwide. Uh, as as somebody who proudly <laughs> drives a uh, <laughs> a truck, uh, just uh, uh, many times because I like the rumble. I, I know that's very sinful of me 
to admit here. Um, but uh, man, uh, this this is certainly this could have some implications. I mean, I think we all know uh, that when California uh, does implement some of these things, it can it can shift the entire market. So it would be interesting to see uh, what happens uh, with the auto industry. I mean, I guess watching the Jetsons growing up, I figured we'd be in flying cars by now. I know. 2035, surely we would have been in flying cars. So Elementary school Josh is very disappointed right now because I was promised that we would have flying cars. Well, uh, not only did the Jetsons promise us flying cars, but uh, also we had Back to the Future 2 that went to the year 2020, and I'm still waiting my hoverboard. Can we not get a hoverboard? Like an actual well, hoverboard. No, not, not the fake ones that we have now. I, I want the I actual say, hoverboard. Apparently your hoverboard can cause fires on planes. So no, you cannot have a hoverboard. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Talk about how deceptive that is. Like uh, a hoverboard can't touch the ground. That's what it means to hover is to not touch the ground. So Right, right. You know, my kid wants a fake hoverboard. Um, I'm very on the fence about going that direction just because I, there's, there's just this something in me that just thinks that you should tell the truth. And that's just, that's right. That's right. And I want to tell my kids don't accept less than excellence. Wait for the Michael J. Fox endorsed hoverboard. That that's what I need to see. Breaking news from our audio producer. He did an in-show fact check. Back to the Future 2 actually went to 2015, not 20. We are five years overdue for that Michael J. Fox endorsed hoverboard. So there you go. That's that's the, the latest from the news desk. All right, moving right along. Catholic News Agency, uh, they reported this week that President Donald Trump on Wednesday announced an executive order that would require medical care to be given to infants who are born alive after a failed abortion attempt. The proposed law, um, the the Born Alive uh, Protection Act, which the ERLC has a number of resources on, uh, the proposed law would not uh, have created any new limit or restriction on access to abortion, but would require that infants born alive after an attempted abortion be given appropriate medical care, consistent with that given to a child of the same gestational age. There have been multiple attempts to actually pass this uh, in Congress. Uh, we, we still want to push for that. I mean, this needs the protection in law of permanent law, uh, not of an executive order. But this was certainly something um, that is is helpful and and hopefully helps shape the environment uh, for us getting a permanent fix in the law. Uh, And then I thought this was a a really good development uh, this week. A translation of the Bible in American Sign Language has just been completed. The project took 39 years, according to the the outlet Discern. Uh, It started in 1970 after a meeting of a a deaf Christian couple who avoided going to church uh, because they did not understand what was going on. Uh, an individual decided he wanted to learn how to sign, uh, which he did, so that he could help the deaf community. Uh, Then he began work on that in 1981, after he had mastered American Sign Language. Uh, There are a number of videos and and helpful uh, explainers related to this on the organization's website, deafmissions.com. So, hey, I, I thought that was... Uh, a truly good development. 
uh, we've got a new translation uh, of the Bible. And that's always something to be celebrated because it means the gospel can reach more people. Well, you know, we've talked about Mark Dever already on this podcast, and Mark Dever is somebody who has impressed upon me the importance of having access to the Word of God. He was teaching a course one time that I was taking, and he said, you know, uh, he asked everyone to hold the Bible in their hands, and so we're holding the Bible, and he says, do you know that people have died so that you could hold this text in your hands? They've given their lives so that you could hold this word of God in your hands in a way that you can read and access and have direct knowledge of God's revelation of himself to us. Well, I feel the same way about this achievement uh, of having the Bible available in American Sign Language. This is a huge deal, and it's something that we shouldn't, uh, you know, honestly, it's something that I just assumed had been done long ago, and so this is certainly a milestone, but thank God that it's complete and that it's available. Well, that's a good word, Josh. If you're like most pastors or church leaders, you're probably facing difficult questions this fall. Questions like, how can I advocate for important issues without hindering my gospel witness? And what responsibilities do we have to engage in this current moment? Today, I'm excited to tell you about the Courage and Civility Church Toolkit, a brand new free resource from the ERLC that answers those questions and more. This toolkit doesn't tell people how to vote, but it does tell them how Christians should think through issues of our day as they see the chaotic culture around us. It gives pastors and church leaders a helpful path to teach their congregations about the things that truly matter and show them how to process this polarized moment. You can find a link to this toolkit in our show notes. So now we're about to talk to our friend, Dr. Paul Miller. Paul is a research fellow with the ERLC. He is an expert in international affairs and a professor at Georgetown University and someone who pays very close attention to both the state of the American church and the state of American politics. And we're excited to have him on the podcast today. So Paul, would you just take a second and tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? And while you're at that, would you tell us just one thing that God is teaching you in this season of life? Well, thanks for the question, and thanks for having me um, on the podcast. I appreciate it. Good to talk to you all again. Um, At the moment, my vocation, uh, I'm a professor of the practice of international affairs at Georgetown University in their Master of Science and Foreign Service program, also a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and a research fellow with the ERLC. Uh, So I read, I write, I teach, I focus on international affairs, but I've also been turning attention uh, over the last year to uh, some domestic issues. Uh, I'm writing a book right now on nationalism and the role that Christianity has played in forming conceptions of American identity. Uh, And so my interests are kind of all over the place. One thing that God has taught me in this season, um, it's hard to think of only one, and it's also hard to describe one. (laughs) Uh, As the Lord often works, he, you know, the things that he teaches us can't be, I, I can tell you a pat answer, you know, I'm learning greater humility, or I'm learning the reality of, um, our citizenship in heaven and how it's different than our citizenship on earth. Uh, I'm learning the importance of treating people with respect and dignity in our public discourse, whether in person or over social media. Those sound like pat answers, but each one of those things has a story behind it that makes them uh, deeper and more real lessons. 
Well, it's amazing how we in our Christian walk seem to come time and time again back to some of the same lessons, <laughs> which I'm always thinking, oh, have I not moved past this, you know, learning humility? But obviously, mm-hmm. in my flesh, I haven't. So thank you for sharing with us. So this next question is broad. We realize that. And we uh, would just like you to share as many of the things that you're paying attention to in culture. So this podcast focuses on Christians and culture, and we would love to know what's on your radar uh, and what those around you are paying attention to right now. So uh, several things. Th- th- thanks for the question. It's it's broad, so I'll take advantage of it and share several answers to it. Uh, as I mentioned, um, quite a lot of my work is focused on international affairs, and my forthcoming book uh, is entitled Just War and Ordered Liberty. It's the fruit of 20 years of reflection and practice in international affairs and and national security. And so I'm trying to pay attention to um, justice in the use of force, justice in our foreign policy, uh, justice in national security affairs. Right now, there's there's no end to issues around the world that involve the use of force or the potential use of force. And so I'm trying to pay attention to um, how the United States government uh, uses or threatens to use force, whether it be in Syria, the ongoing war in Afghanistan, which still has not ended, uh, North Korea, of course, um, tensions with China and Russia. Those are all things that I'm keeping an eye on and uh, happy to talk more about those um, at another time. I'm also paying attention, as I mentioned, uh, to uh, you know my, my, my next book is on uh, nationalism and Christianity and American identity. So I'm trying to pay attention to the way in which Christians engage in the public square and the way in which we bring our Christianity into the public square. And I think there's right ways and wrong ways of doing it. I want to say I think it's right to bring our Christian faith, our Christian identity into the public square. Those who tell us that we shouldn't do so, we should leave our faith at the door, I think that's mistaken. Um, But uh, there are right and wrong ways of bringing our Christian identity, our Christian faith into into the public square. Um, We should always pursue Christian principle, uh, Christian charity, and Christian sense of justice. But that does not mean pursuing Christian power and Christian privilege. Those are different things. So... I'm sure some of that research for your upcoming book came out of a report uh, that you authored for the RLC last year called Faith and Healthy Democracy. So could you tell us, uh, just remind our audience a little bit about that report and maybe some of those findings uh, that have been useful in your own research? Yeah. So um, again, thanks for that question. Uh, privileged to, uh, to to lead a team of researchers who studied this issue of uh, faith and healthy democracy and our civic culture in America uh, over the last few years and resulted in that report. Um, and we looked at uh, the role that uh, American Christians have played uh, in American democracy and studied what seems to be maybe going wrong in American democracy today, whether it's fueled by social media or by polarization, negative polarization, uh, or by demographic trends as people sort themselves out into sort of red and blue camps, um, or by sort of historical patterns of injustice that continue to be replicated today. Um, We also looked at American Christians' political priorities. We, We commissioned a research poll to examine what Christians said they really cared about, what was important to them. You know, one of the things we found is that uh, white evangelicals care a lot about religious liberty, abortion, and a few other issues. And non-white Christians seem to have a different set of political priorities. Uh, African-American Christians and other non-white Christians care a lot about uh, immigration, anti-poverty, criminal justice reform, um, and similar issues, and, and race and racism. Um, so that was a that was, a, that was an interesting finding, and I think that 
maybe part of the message of a report was that these are all valid issues for Christians to care about. And if we get captive to one political party that cares about only a subset of those issues, only one set of those issues, we maybe are not giving, uh, we're not reflecting a full public witness to the world and that we ought to champion justice across the full range of public policy issues. And that, I think, is a better route to a, uh, a robust Christian public witness. Well, we're very thankful for the work that you're doing in so many areas to educate us on as believers on how to live out our faith. And so in the midst of what's going on in our world right now in American life, it is a kind of a wild ride between coronavirus, a contentious election season, um, ongoing protests and riots about racial justice with the uh, even the Breonna Taylor ruling just coming down. Things were already tense, and they just seemed to ratchet up a notch. Now, with the death of Justice Ginsburg, there's even more unrest and uncertainty. So what advice do you have for Christians who are thinking about their public witness during uh, these next few months? Yeah, so that's a, that's a hard and complicated question, and um, it kind of varies case by case, varies issue by issue. You've listed off several different ones, from COVID to the uh, protests for racial justice and now a Supreme Court vacancy. Um, you know, to speak to some of the specific issues on on the COVID pandemic, um, you know, we know from Scripture that we ought to, for the most part, you know, in normal times, obey the government. And as they, they have uh, ordered us to uh, wear masks, we should wear masks. Um, if, if they've ordered us to cease uh, public activities, we should generally do that. Um, you know, on the mask issue, I know some people find that they feel offended by the government telling them to wear a mask. And I would just say um, most of us are not scientists and we should obey the government unless it violates our conscience or our religious liberty. And wearing a mask doesn't do that. So you should wear a mask. Uh, I think it's a pretty simple issue there. You know, uh, on ceasing public meetings, uh, again, it was very reasonable for the government to tell us that so long as that's an impartial and fair rule. I understand now that some churches believe that that's, it's no longer impartial, and it is right for them, it is right for those churches to pursue impartial justice from the government, whether that means everybody, uh, all organizations being disallowed to, to meet or getting the churches to allow to meet again, uh, depending upon what the public situation allows. On the protests for racial justice and, the, and the, the occasional riots, I think Christians should be the first to advocate for justice in all its forms should be the first to advocate for racial justice. But also we should be the first to say that violence is not the right way to pursue this. Thank God that uh, most of the uh, protests we've seen have not turned violent, uh, and there's not been a whole lot of loss of life. Um, we should protest and not riot. I think that's a pretty simple way to think about uh, the racial um, unrest in America today. On the Supreme Court, I know this is an issue that Christians, um, particularly conservative and white Christians, have just really focused on a lot in recent decades. Um, I think that we can and should uh, mourn the passing of a public servant, be grateful for uh, her life and legacy, um, as she did, in, you know, Ginsburg did advocate for many categories of the oppressed and disenfranchised, um, even as I think many Christians will, will critique her record of advocacy for abortion. We should pray for the United States as we're in a place of tremendous division. Uh, pray for wisdom for the president and the Congress as they consider the possibility of replacing uh, Justice Ginsburg, and uh, pray for stability, pray for peace, 
uh, for maturity, for uh, a spirit of peace throughout the country in these very divisive times. You know, as you mentioned earlier, you are constantly paying attention to what is going on in international affairs. I mean, you're an expert in that. You're uh, you're an expert when it comes to the state of the American church and uh, democracy uh, here in America. So we always love to deliver some, some good news on this podcast. And uh, amidst all of the instances right now of uh, bad news, chaotic news, are there any trends or signs on the horizon that encourage you personally as, as someone who studies all of this? My natural bent is towards pessimism. <laughs> I tend to look at the glass half empty. I tend to see the dark cloud and not the silver lining. The encouraging things, I suppose, would be, I feel that there are more people who are concerned about the state of our democracy and who are digging into it and trying to find ways that they can contribute to solutions. And that it, there's a, maybe an awakening of um, civic involvement and civic spirit. And that's a good thing. That's not a solution by itself, but it is the first step. The solutions are often complicated, they're messy, they involve a lot of details and policy that can be kind of boring. But by and large, that awakening of civic interest and spirit is uh, a very good, very encouraging first step. And I would encourage all Americans, all Christians to be involved in their communities, locally, nationally, globally, uh, and not to let that civic spirit go away if tomorrow they invent the vaccine, if tomorrow the crisis of the Supreme Court is resolved. Cultivate it as a habit. Go to your local uh, parent-teacher association, your local school board. Go to your local city council. Become involved there. Make your voice heard and participate in this kind of machinery of democracy because that is how we love our neighbors politically when we have the privilege of living in a democracy. That's a good word, and that's a good word to end on. So, Paul, we are just so thankful that uh, you took a, a few minutes today to be with us and, and help our audience understand some of these very big things that are going on in our world. Where can folks uh, find you on uh, social media? You can find me on Twitter at Paul D. Miller 2. Don't forget the two, Paul D. Miller 2 on Twitter. Uh, and uh, you can find my writing uh, usually at places like Providence Magazine, uh, sometimes Arc Digital. Uh, and elsewhere. So I'm happy to connect with readers and listeners in any format. That's great. Well, we are so thankful that God has placed you in Washington, D.C., in the position that you're in at Georgetown University. And we're just so, again, appreciative uh, that you joined us today on the RLC podcast. Thank you. So now it's time for The Lunchroom, where every week we tell you the things we've been talking about with one another. Lindsay, you're up first this week, so why don't you tell us what's on your mind? In light of Brent talking about the Christmas season— um, and reminding him, Josh and I reminding him that if you love Christmas, you need to love the cool weather as well. Um, there are some Christmas albums that are going to be releasing here soon. One is by Carrie Underwood, her first ever Christmas album. So this is just going to make her even richer than she already is because <laughs> Christmas albums always sell so well. Um, and then Dolly Parton is going to have a Christmas album. Uh, and then... This is not a Christmas album, but it's a mention of another CD. Sometimes in the midst of really hard things and really hard situations uh, in the world, well, one of my escapes is probably movies or something, but the other is uh, music. But music is less of an escape and more of a way that the Lord often ministers to me. But one band that I really love who has a song out that I really love right now is called Need to Breathe. So I would encourage you to check out their, their album. It's probably been out for a while. 
But they have this song "Who Am I" called "Who Am I," and it is so good. I love it. And my husband is annoyed with how many times I've played it already. Um, also, how many times can one person say "album" in the midst of their lunchroom segment? <laughs> I tried to switch to CDs sometimes, but I I realized that I said it multiple times. Well, I'm I'm right there with you, Lynn's, and I I like the uh, the Amy Grant Christmas song, the. Uh, Tender Tennessee Christmas. Tender t- oh yeah. Yeah. That's yep. that's my new. Oh, actually I do I do have one that's more modern. Uh the uh Mariah Carey uh All I Want for Christmas is is you. Yeah, you know, that's one of the most popular Christmas songs and I think she wrote half of it. I think only two people wrote that. So my husband is in the publishing world in Christian music. Uh and so what that means, the fact that only two people wrote that massive song is that Mariah Carey is set for life. Just get nice. royalty checks that roll in because stations play that song. Josh, I know what you and I need to team up and do. I'm here for it, Brent. We need a song about Christmas and maybe one about the Supreme Court. And who knows, man? There's all there's all kinds of untapped topics that we could get into. And I mean, know. I feel like I feel like the the thing with writing a good Christmas song is it's gotta be able to last about 10 to 15 years. Before then, it really takes off and enters the Christmas Music Hall of Fame. Well, you can look up online where they dissected Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas and why it's so popular. So maybe that will help y'all in your quest. Brent, uh, why don't you take us in a different direction? Well, actually, Josh, because I love Christmas, I'm going to keep us on uh, the Christmas theme. Uh, so, uh, I saw this this week, thought it was really good. CNBC has, uh, a piece out, uh, talking about these are the products to buy, uh, before the fall and winter really, uh, get upon us. So the reason it's saying is because look at the beginning of the pandemic, these things all were basically out, uh, of stock across the country uh, because they became very popular with folks staying in. Well, there's a there's a decent chance that we're all going to be huddled up inside once again uh, this fall and winter. And so it is telling people, go ahead and, and buy these things now. So things that uh, last long uh, in terms of food on your shelf, uh, cleaning supplies, hand sanitizer, uh, exercise equipment, air purifiers, and holiday gifts. So folks, go ahead and get your Christmas shopping out of the way now uh, because uh, things like jigsaw puzzles and bikes, all that, uh, it's, it's, there's very likely to be a run on it uh, later this year. So that would be uh, something I would share with our audience. And then also, I just want to point out this coming weekend, Lindsay, SEC football is back and that's a very good thing. I don't know how long it'll be back, but I'm going to revel in every moment of it I can while it's here with us. Da-na-na-na-na. Go, Gators! Wouldn't be an ERLC podcast without Lindsay chiming in about the Gators. Uh, everyone is excited that football is back. It has been, you know, a strange thing to see these sparsely attended games, but hey, better than no football, right? That is correct. So, Josh, what, what are oh, you— Oh, for uh, sure. What do you bring into the lunchroom? 
so that we can mercifully wrap up this podcast, I'll go ahead and tell you my lunchroom for the week, which is really just a funny story that happened. So normally we record the podcast on Thursdays and it releases on Fridays. We uh, sometimes have to schedule interviews at different times. So we ended up uh, doing Paul's interview yesterday, which was Wednesday. And in the middle of the interview, I got a text message from our podcast producer, Gary. And it turns out that his wife, who was driving down the road uh, as she's, you know, traveling around doing whatever she had going on, there were suddenly mice in her car. And after sharing this with my wife and asking her what she would do, she said that she would absolutely panic. Well, apparently she then pulled this you know, pulled her car over on the side of the road, texted Gary, and Gary has this real emergency. The problem was that from because, you know, we're recording this all remotely, where his wife was was actually way closer to me than it was to him. And so I just exited the podcast uh, interview with Paul and made my way to the side of the road. Well, here's a question for you. If you're at your house and you are going to try to help someone with this problem of, having, you know, an unknown number of mice in their car, what do you take with you? What kind of tools or random, you know, house stuff do you take with you to try to extricate mice from a car? Well, in my case, we've been doing a lot of painting in my house, and I just started grabbing whatever I could find. And so with me was a drape from where we had been painting things. I took several different kinds of boxes and things to like reach uh, in, you know, smaller places. Took one of my children's tiny dust pans and my most creative thing I thought was I actually brought a pool noodle with me in case there was, you know, the, uh, a mouse in a place that was hard to reach. I didn't want to damage their car. And I thought maybe that, maybe that would do the trick. Well, between the two of us, I, I got there first and then Gary ends up meeting me there. We were able to find that all the all mice had been put out of the car and he was able to take it home and to absolutely tear it apart. You look for any, uh, any further signs of mice or even evidence of how they got there, but it was a truly bizarre thing. It was definitely uh, a memory that the two of us are going to share for a long time. And it was something that thankfully, you know, no mice were harmed. Everyone is fine. And Gary, if I know him at all, is going to ensure that that never happens again. So just to clarify your, your tool of choice to get, to retrieve a mouse in a hard to reach place in a vehicle is a pool noodle. I mean, it was only one of many options, but yes, I did. Uh, I did bring a pool noodle with me. Fortunately, I did not have to deploy that, that particular one. Pool noodle. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's the kind of quality content that ERLC podcast listeners expect. And so we're going to leave it there. But we, <laughs> we want to say thanks so much for listening to the podcast every week. And just as a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes, minus the story about the mice, because no one has yet sought fit to write about that. But if you like the podcast, if you would, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your podcast app and leaving us a rating or review. But for Brent and Lindsay and myself and for Gary, who's behind the scenes, we want to say thanks so much for listening and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.